0: Good morning. Well, I think it goes without saying that uh, this is probably one of the most critical elections that uh, we've ever had. It is certainly one of the most unique elections that we've ever had because most people will agree that this hasn't been about voting for someone. If anything, it's about voting against something or someone. And that that is quite uh, unprecedented, really. But as believers in Jesus Christ, living in this country, we have a privilege and a right. And it's something that we ought to take seriously and realize after seeing something like this video uh, can impact the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, can impact the, the social and moral issues of the day, as they already have uh, in the past that have, have really upset uh, a lot of what is, uh, has been uh, taken as, as, uh, as good things for a nation. I think we have to remember that uh, one of the Proverbs says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And that comes from God, who is today in this country uh, a real fuzzy thing, you know. But not for us. We know who God is. And we must remember that it doesn't matter who is going to be in the White House after Tuesday. Let's always remember who's on the throne now. And that's Jesus Christ, our Lord, and our Savior. So, no matter what happens, we continue to serve with joy and gladness. We continue to serve with wisdom and, and understanding and with grace. And we need to get serious about praying for our country. About taking Second Chronicles 7.14 to heart each and every day. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. So please do that and exercise your right. But, but, but may I give you just one suggestion before you go in, and I know that many of you already voted, but if you haven't voted and you're waiting till, till Tuesday, please do one thing for me. Pray before you go into the ballot box. Pray before you, before you leave your home and ask God to give you wisdom because it has to be that way. This is how critical it is. We need to let the Lord... You know, speak to our hearts and our consciences and our understanding of his word to do what is necessary for, for this country. So we have a tremendous right to do that and a tremendous blessing like no other nation has. So let's continue to take that. Would you please turn to John chapter 10? This morning, our focus is upon verses 11 through 16. For the last few weeks, we have uh, drawn all of our attention upon the first 10 verses of chapter 10. And uh, it took us three weeks, but we finally came to understand what Jesus meant when he said, I am the door of the sheep. But much of the time that we spent in those three weeks was also establishing the character of Jesus as the true shepherd of the sheep. And so today we're looking at this passage that deals with him as the good shepherd of the sheep. Now one thing to understand and to remember is that uh, this, in, in this uh, particular text we find now the fourth great I am statement of Jesus. Now, in chapter 6, he said, I am the bread of life. In John chapter 8, he said, I am the light of the world. In this chapter, he has said, I am the door of the sheep. And now, I am the good shepherd. And let's not forget that the statement, I am, is really the designation of God's name. And therefore, what Jesus is saying is that he is deity, that he is God. God that has been manifest in the flesh. this is one reason why the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Israel have all come in, in, in a great opposition against Jesus and against everything that he says, even though he has all the credentials for the Messiah of Israel. And we've talked about that in the last few weeks. The fact that he was born uh, of a virgin. The fact that he was born in Bethlehem and a number of other uh, credentials that we see throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. What he has been saying in this chapter has been directed to the Pharisees who were now designated as blind and as deaf, because they were not seeing and hearing the things that Jesus was saying and doing. So as we go on, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. By the way, uh, in chapter 10, Jesus has now turned to the, uh, using the device of a parable to reach and to speak to the Pharisees. A story type of thing where there's, a sheepfold there is a flock and there is a shepherd and there are also false shepherds and there are thieves and robbers and uh, so on and so forth so this, this is we've covered already uh, we'll talk a little bit more about it today i am the good shepherd the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep but he that is a hireling or one that is hired and not the shepherd whose own the sheep are not seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth and The wolf catches them, and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth, because he is a hireling, and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice." And there shall be one fold and one shepherd. And therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Now in looking at Jesus as the door of the sheep... Along with knowing that he is the true shepherd of the sheep, we discovered three things. First of all, we discovered that the true shepherd saves by providing salvation for his sheep. The true shepherd saves, verse 9, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The very fact that he can go in and out is saying that he has that freedom given to the sheep freedom from, from bondage, freedom from sin and death, and to find true pasture, which is to find the place where they may be best fed as sheep. Don't forget that, that the, the shepherd doesn't just let them go. He's with them always, and he leads them. Secondly, the true shepherd provides security for his sheep. For we know, as we see in verse 10, the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life. And that particular statement there has to do with the kind of life that is a secure life. A secure life in the shepherd. And thirdly, the true shepherd provides satisfaction to his sheep. For he says at the end of verse 10 that they might have it more abundantly. That they might have life and have it more abundantly. It is important to remember that Jesus came, that we might have life and have it more abundantly. But, folks, remember this. Only in his terms. Only on his terms, I should say. It has to be on the terms of the sh- on the shepherd because he's the shepherd, we're just the sheep. The sheep, do- the sheep don't come to the shepherd and say, listen, we- we'll-, we'll follow you, but on-, on our terms, in our way. It's just absurd, isn't it? It's an absurd thought. And then one thing that we'll see in our text today is the very deep distinction and contrast between the heavenly shepherd, and the hireling shepherd. And that is what we see in verses 11 through 13, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. That is a tremendous statement because what it says is, I care for the sheep enough that I'll give my life for them. And you might be wondering, well, they're just sheep. No, they're not. You're not just sheep. You're precious to the Lord. You belong to Him. But then he says, but he that is a hireling. Now again, remember, he's speaking to the Pharisees. Pharisees who are supposed to be the shepherds of Israel, the leadership of Israel, the ones, the sheep of Israel are supposed to be following. But he that is a hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming, leaveth the sheep, and fleeth. And the wolf catches them and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth, because he's a hireling and careth not for the sheep. So let's go back here to verse 11, because we have to establish an understanding of this contrast between the good shepherd and the hireling. The literal reading of the first phrase of verse 11 is quite significant. I know that it says that Jesus said, I am in English, I am the good shepherd. But in the Greek, the construction of the verse is this way I am the shepherd, the good. I am the shepherd, the good. Now, this kind of grammatical designation takes us back actually to some examples and types of Christ in the Hebrew scriptures, or the Old Testament, but types of Christ as shepherds. And there were four shepherds in particular that illustrated a certain characteristic of the Messiah as shepherd. For example, the first would be Abel, the brother of Cain, who we know was a shepherd. And he was a righteous shepherd. In contrast to his brother Cain, who did not offer the kind of of offering that God wanted them to offer. So Cain, or I should say Abel, was a righteous shepherd. That is certainly a characteristic of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then there was Jacob who proved in his acquiring the birthright, even though we know it was kind of shady the way he did that, nonetheless. Uh, Bear with me. But Jacob, who proved in his acquiring the birthright, that he was a shepherd of resourcefulness. Well, we know that our Lord is a resourceful shepherd, certainly. And then thirdly, Moses. Moses was a shepherd, and Moses exemplified a shepherd who returned for God's flock. So Moses gives us the character of a returned shepherd, and we know that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is going to return for his sheep. And then, of course, there was David the shepherd king and so he exemplifies a shepherd as a royal shepherd and there can be no greater royal shepherd than Jesus who is considered and called the prince of peace the king of kings and the lord of lords and yet he's our shepherd so all of uh, all of them were partial types of Jesus the good shepherd so where one was a shepherd, the, um, the righteous, or the shepherd, the resourceful, the shepherd, the uh, returned, or the shepherd, the royal, in all of those can be found in Jesus saying, I am the shepherd, the good. What we learn of Jesus in the first 10 verses of this chapter is that he is more than the good shepherd who gave his life for his sheep. For the word good, by the way, refers to his inward beauty. It refers, in fact, to the beauty of his holiness. Now, we all are familiar with that term from the Old Testament. and I'm going to give you every uh, phrase that is used in the Old Testament for the beauty of holiness or the beauty of his holiness. But what does it mean, the beauty of his holiness? It is a word that, the, the word good is, is, is a word that means winsome or, or, or pleasant or sweet or attractive. And it also means to be virtuous. So when you see this in the good shepherd, then you can even better understand what David said when, when giving forth a prayer unto the Lord and encouraging the people to do certain things. For example, in 1 Chronicles 16, verse 29, when, when the Ark of the Covenant was taken into the city and was placed in a temporary uh, uh, location, in, into a tent, that David said in First Chronicles sixteen twenty-nine, "...give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name, bring an offering and come before him, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness." Consider that we are here today to worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness, which is all good. This is what makes him the good shepherd. This is what gives us the understanding of what it means for God to be good. And it reminds us how sometimes we cheapen the word good to mean a lot of more things than than it really, really means when we apply it to deity, when we apply it to our God and to our Savior, and to our Messiah. It's used also in Second Chronicles chapter 20, during the time when Jehoshaphat and the children of Judah were, were faced with the challenge of three nations surrounding them and having to go into battle against them. And this was the battle where God told them, listen, you're not going to have to fight this battle. I want you to go forth and sing praise. You know, in other words, you're to offer praises. The worship team were the ones that were leading out the the battle, not the soldiers. But in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 21, it says that when he had consulted with the people, he appointed, this being uh, uh, Jehoshaphat, when he had consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord, and that should praise the beauty of holiness, as they went out before the army, and to say, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endureth forever. This is good. This is how we are to worship the good God. And so later on, the psalmist would apply this very same passage from 1 Chronicles. Psalm 29 verses 1 and 2, David, give unto the Lord, O ye mighty, give unto the Lord glory and strength, give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Worship the Lord in the very fact that he is such a good God. Psalm 96 verses 8 and 9, give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name, bring an offering and come into his courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, fear before him all the earth. And this particular psalm now goes beyond just the children of Israel, but in fact says to all the earth, God is good, and we should all bow our knee to him in worship. And hence, Jesus is not only the good shepherd who gave his life for the sheep, as described for us in Psalm 22, and sometime today, make sure that you read Psalm 22. And then certainly throughout the Gospels, as the good shepherd who gave his life for the sheep, But another thing that we need to know about our shepherd is that he's the great shepherd. He's the great shepherd who cares for his sheep. And we're told in Hebrews 13 verses 20 and 21, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, which again ties us to the very fact that he gave his life for the sheep, Make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That is a great shepherd. He's great because he gave himself for you and for me. But not only was he a, is he a good shepherd and a great shepherd, he's also the chief shepherd who will come again in glory. And this is how we need to see our shepherd. He's a good shepherd, worthy of our praise, worthy of our worship. He's a great shepherd because he gave his life for the sheep. And now we need to praise him for being the chief shepherd who's going to come again. So we need to be looking for him and listening for him, listening for the voice of our, our shepherd who's going to call us home. And by the way, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-4, through 4, listen to what Peter says. To the shepherds of the church. Now this was a general letter to the churches. So Peter is saying the elders which are among you I exhort. And again the elders would be the shepherds of the, of the church or the, or the under shepherds. Because there's only one shepherd and that's Jesus. So the elders which are among you I exhort who I'm also an elder. And notice how Peter puts himself eye to eye with all of the leaders of the church. Doesn't put himself over them. And a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. He he, he saw Jesus in all his glory in the Mount of Transfiguration. But he says, to these elders feed the flock of God. Some of your translations may say shepherd the flock of God. We talked about what it means to shepherd. A shepherd shepherds, a pastor pastors, you see. Noun and verb. Object and action. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint. In other words, don't, don't do this because you're forced to have to be a shepherd. Oh, you know. That reminded me of, of the, the pastor, you know, that uh, didn't want to get up. Go to church in the morning, you know, the wife had to get him get him going. I, I messed up the joke already, but anyway. The man, they want to get up, and then, you know, the wife said, well, you've got to go to church, you're the pastor. Okay, you understand about that. That's, that's constraint, by the way, you know, you've got to be in constraint. You've got to go, you've got to go, you're the pastor. No, 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 not by constraint, but willingly. Willingly feed the flock. Willingly see that the, the, the church needs this feeding, this, this care that comes from the word of God. Not for filthy lucre, which is really just gain, monetary gain, but of a ready mind. Trusting the Lord. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. That's a problem to me still to this day that there are those who want to be lords over God's heritage. There was a problem years ago in the church where there was something called the shepherding movement where there were certain people who were overseeing certain small flocks and they would actually tell these flocks, listen, uh, I, I'm your shepherd, so I'm going to tell you what you can do. Some of them even got to the point where they would tell tell people who they could marry and who they couldn't marry that's just one example there's a lot of other things and it was, it was really a very sad time still is but not as being lords over God's heritage but being examples to the flock and notice when he says in verse 4 he says and when the chief shepherd shall appear the chief shepherd and I say this with all due respect and jefe you know, you know some people use this thing about chief nowadays You know, a lot of people say hey chief how's it going and don't call me chief man there's only one chief and it's not me there's the chief shepherd. The chief shepherd shall appear, and you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. We're waiting for the shepherd to return. But he hasn't left us alone. He's given us a spirit. He's with us. So with these things in mind concerning our good shepherd, I want you to consider now verses 12 and 13 of our text where we see the contrast between Jesus and the hired shepherd or the hireling. Because it is obviously a paid position which doesn't mean that everyone that serves the Lord in the ministry and receives uh, compensation or funds for what they do is to be considered a hireling. No. In fact, the Apostle Paul will, will state the importance of taking care of those who give you the gospel of Jesus Christ who feed you as a shepherd feeds a flock. This comes really from the, the Hebrew scriptures and it comes from the law where the Levites and those who were the sons of Aaron who were the, uh, this was now the priestly uh, uh, tribe of, of Israel, was to take care of Israel and those who did that and did it faithfully, they were supposed to be taken care of by the other tribes. So it isn't, a, it isn't something that's you know, uh, uh, a bad thing if, if you're being taken care of for doing what you've been called to do. But a hireling, pure and simple, may be receiving pay but has no true attachment to the sheep. And that's is the issue here because if they, if they the hireling, or if, if they, the sheep, are injured, if the sheep die, if they go hungry, it's not the concern of the hireling. Why? Because he's only there for his pay. They're interested only in themselves. And so when danger comes and times get tough or things don't go their way, they just up and leave. And this was the problem during the time of Jesus' earthly ministry. Because in in effect, he's referring back to something that we saw last time in Jeremiah 23. And I'll only give you the first two verses instead of all four. But in the first two verses of Jeremiah 23, he said, Woe be unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pastor, saith the Lord. The sheep of Israel belonged to the good shepherd. But the under shepherds who were assigned to care for them became as hirelings who would destroy and scatter the sheep for their own gain. And Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, against the pastors that feed my people in that manner, or in effect, that feed on my people, you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doing, saith the Lord." And by the way, the previous passage in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-4 through 4, is also a reminder to us in the ministry that we are to always have the heart of a shepherd if we are in the ministry. We are to have a heart of the shepherd. And tragically, many sheep have been hurt by those hirelings who are only interested in themselves and not in the sheep that the Lord has entrusted to them. I not only get saddened by seeing televangelists that get on the TV and, and beg for people to send them whatever they can and, and yet have this, this audacity to live high on, on the hog, as it were, and, and fly multi-million dollar airplanes and live in multi-million dollar homes while the people that are supporting this are on welfare. And that's been a proven thing. And unfortunately, it was the world that, that discovered that, and you know, even though many of the church had already seen through all of that. Their whole issue was, you know if the sheep get destroyed, it's not on me. Those of us who serve the Lord, we're pained. When somebody leaves or draws people away or complains in the sense that, uh, you know, sometimes people fall through the cracks. We're, we're human, you know, we, we do our best, but uh, we, we don't like to see things happen the way they do, sometimes in the church. It pains us, grieves us. This is why we have to depend upon the one true shepherd to give us wisdom and strength and understanding through this. Because it's not about what we can make. It's about giving you the truth, giving you the gospel, giving you the word of God, feeding you these things. Now, you have to to be the ones to eat it. To digest it, to nourish, be nourished by it. You have to do your part. But we want to be faithful in serving you that way. Verses 14 and 15 it says, "I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine, as as the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep." You'll notice in this whole section that that Jesus actually says that three times, and we're going to come to deal with that issue next time, but. As we've learned before, Jesus knows his sheep, and they know him. And there is an intimate knowledge between Jesus and his sheep. He knows them. He knows their lives. He knows their being. He knows their all. And he knows them in all of their joys and blessings, as well as in their trials and sorrows. He knows them in in their wanderings and in their stumblings, as well as in their need and in their lack. He truly keeps his mind on them by his spirit and caring for them through intercession as well as by fellowship and companionship. In fact, our shepherd right now is interceding for us. Paul tells us in Romans 8, 34, Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Now that's a good shepherd who still cares for his sheep even this very minute now his sheep are to know him we're to know his life we're to know his being and we are to know his all we as believers in our Good Shepherd are to know him believing and trusting in his love and care, to know his mind and his word, his leadership and his fellowship, his experience and his knowledge, and his destiny and pasture. What do I mean by that? Well, we need to know that he has stated very clearly, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where will that be? Where we can find pure pasture. Heaven, in other words. The fact that the sheep know him, And know him so well is clear proof that Jesus is the good shepherd of their lives. This is the reason why over the last few weeks I have asked you, do you know him? Not just about him, do you know him? Are you having fellowship with him? Are you enjoying that fellowship with Christ each and every day? Are you spending that time with him? Are you spending that time in his word? Are you reading? Are you studying? Are you praying? Are Are you trusting? because he's your shepherd and you're his sheep and he loves you. In fact, later on in John 10 verse 27 a few verses later, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So he continues with that uh, continual thought being given. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. We're in this room now. We're we're, we're in a fold. But if we're truly his flock, when we leave this place, we leave those doors, we still follow the shepherd. So the question is, when you leave these doors, who you're following? This is just a fold. He's the shepherd to follow. The Apostle Paul made two grand statements pertaining to the knowledge of Christ. The first statement was to the church in Philippi, Philippians chapter three verses seven and eight, where he said, "But what things were gained to me? Those I counted loss for Christ." yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for what?" For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. The excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. That says something. That says it isn't just about knowing a little bit about him or having a little bit of biblical knowledge. You know, most of us can, can, can memorize scripture. Some of us will look for the smallest verse of scripture to memorize. Jesus wept. That's in the Gospel of John, by the way. I memorized Scripture. Yeah, which one? Yeah, John whatever, John 11. Jesus wept. (laughs) I think we're coming up on that one pretty soon. Memorize it. It's not hard. (laughs) But is that excellency? Is it excellency? What is excellent about your relationship and fellowship to Jesus Christ? but that every day you get to know him more and get to know him better. And he wants that because he wants to be in fellowship with each and every one of us, each and every day. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. A hireling would say, you know what, I've suffered a lot. I'm getting out of here. But Paul says, I have suffered the loss of all things and do count those things, but excrement, dung, that I may win Christ. Now, isn't that the great prize to win? The excellency of the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's not up to any of us in this room except for each and every one of us individually to know Jesus with all of our heart. To love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To serve him with all of our heart. And then to Timothy, his son in the faith. 2 Timothy 1 verse 12. For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed. There are so many statements in the scripture that, that, that bring up these questions. Do you know whom you have believed? Paul says, "I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Know your shepherd. Of even greater significance is the fact that we see, uh, the, the, the fact we see in verse 15, that Jesus knows the Father and the, who is the owner of the sheep. Now the, the question may arise, how well does he know the Father? I mean, that that is certainly, to some extent, one of the questions that the Pharisees were asking Jesus. You keep talking about knowing the Father, but how well do you know the Father? Well, it certainly isn't in the same sense as other men know him. The phrasing in verse 15, by the way, makes it all clear. As the Father knoweth me, notice, as the Father knoweth me, even so I the Father. As he knows me, I know him. However well God knows Jesus, that is how well Jesus knows God the Father. Let's get that straight. There is a perfect, intimate knowledge and relationship and fellowship between the Father and the Son. And that's important for us to know because He's our shepherd and He knows the owner of the sheep. In fact, in John 10 verse 30, a little later on, Jesus will again say something of great significance. He said, I and the Father are one. I and my Father are one. And then it's even clearer in Matthew 11, verse 27. When Jesus said, all things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father. No man knoweth the Son as intimately as the Father knows the Son. Neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. So tremendous statement about the knowledge of the Son and the Father and the Father and the Son. As I said, I'll speak more on Jesus laying down his life for the sheep uh, next time, but let's look at verse 16. For Jesus said, and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. So here is the $64,000 question. Who are the other sheep? Now this may sound funny to you. But there are actually believers in the UFO phenomena, you know, UFOs, unidentified flying objects. There, there are these believers in, the, in, in that UFO phenomena that will tell you that Jesus is talking about people on other planets. Just saying. Woo. More seriously much more seriously is what the Mormons say about this verse. And many of them may have come to your house one day and knocked on their door with their nice clean white shirts and black ties. Little tags that little boys with pimples call themselves elders. I don't know where that comes from. But they'll come in and they'll say, did you know that these other sheep right here on these two continents of North and South America. They teach that this is referring to the lost tribes of Israel that had supposedly migrated to America 600 years or so earlier. And that's very interesting to me because I know one thing. When I read the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, I know that there is a place called Israel, and over in the land of Israel there are many places that are described in the scriptures and many other places in near uh, nearby places that that actually to this day have been excavated uh, archaeologically and uh, biblically They, they, they give credence to everything that the Word of God says about those places because they've been found. Now that over thousands of years. But when you look at some of the places described in the Book of Mormon and supposedly they are in, 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 in this continent or, you know, in, in the Western Hemisphere. That there is not even one credible archaeological place discovered. And that only over 600 years. Uh, so, uh, I would say that that uh, is a real stretch. To say that this verse, verse 16... Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, refers to anyone on this continent, then that you know Jesus actually appeared in the Western Hemisphere, you know, to bring people to him. So the scriptures then simply teach, simply teach that the other sheep are Gentiles. That's it. Because throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. There are really only two groups described in Scripture. Well, I mean, there are a lot of nations and tongues and peoples, but in fact, you group them in two, in two. There are the Jewish people, and there are the Gentiles. And that's it. Now, you can even break down in, in, in the Jewish uh, scheme of things, you can break them down a little bit, I mean, because you know, there has been intermarriage, and, but, but that has not really uh, uh, challenged you know, the religious aspect, because if a person wants to be, you know, a Jewish person and believe in the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know, that, that's allowed. But they've, they've stayed as pure as any race for as, as long as we know them to be around. On the other hand, the Gentiles have many t- tribes and tongues and peoples and races and all of that, but there's only two groups, Jews and Gentiles. So for the ordinary Jewish people of Jesus' day, it would seem absolutely incredible to think that Gentiles could be a part of God's flock. But this is exactly what happened. Peter saw a vision. If you remember in Acts chapter 10, Peter saw a vision and then shared the gospel in the house of a Roman centurion whose name is Cornelius. The apostle Paul was sent out to preach the gospel. And even he would say to us in in the book of Romans chapter 1, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile or Greek, which at the time, you know, Greek was synonymous with with Gentile. But what we need to consider is what is going to be sung in heaven, which is yet to happen, but we've been told it's going to happen. That's in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 5 verse 9. There's going to be a song sung in heaven with these words. And they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou was slain, notice. So who's that speaking of? Jesus. Thou was slain and has redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred, tongue, and people, and nation. Jew and Gentile together. When you go back to John chapter 1 and you think of this, this grand introduction given to us about the Logos, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. A few verses later, in verse 11, it says, He came, this Logos, the, the Word made flesh, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. Who were his own? The Jewish people. He came unto his own, and his own received him not, but as many as received him, both Jewish and Gentile, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Jew and the Gentile who believe become actually one. And one last thing before we get to the table of communion this morning. There is a major difference between a fold and a flock. Symbolically, the fold of the earlier verses of, the, of this chapter in the first four or five verses, the fold or the or, or the sheepfold, refers to the nation of Israel a fold, or in the, in the Greek, aule, is characterized by a wall or an enclosure of sorts, which is rather symbolic of, of, of Jewish people anyway because of, of the, the number of walls that they would build around the law. And they themselves will call it a wall, you know, that they build around the things that, that God has, uh, has given them. A flock, on the other hand, a poimen, is characterized by a focal point the focal point of a flock is the shepherd the focal point of a flock is the shepherd the great truth announced by Jesus was that he was leading his sheep out of the fold and gathering the flock so the first part of the first 10 verses the first part of it was saying here's the shepherd and the uh, the porter or the doorkeeper knows the shepherd and there's, you know, there's a lot of sheep from all different kinds of, of shepherds or you know whatever but they're all you know like let's say the 12 tribes of Israel for example in, in effect but he knows his sheep and when he calls them the porter knows the shepherd so when the shepherd calls his sheep the sheep, the sheep come out with him and then he leads them out to pasture then you go into the second half of, the, of, of verses 1-10 through 10, and you, you see now the focus is upon the, the shepherd and the flock but yet he takes them to his own fold where he becomes the door And then he's their salvation. And then he's their security. And he's their satisfaction. Everything centers around the shepherd. And so the lost sheep of the house of Israel to whom he had come had heard his call. Those who had heard and heeded were now to to become a new flock. The core of a much larger flock because it isn't just Jews. But Jews and Gentiles becoming one. And that's us in this room today. And so I close with Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to come to the table of communion here in a moment, but let me read to you what Paul says to the Gentiles of the church of Ephesus when he says in verse 11, Wherefore, remember that you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the eyes, I'm sorry, in the flesh made by hands. So you were called uncircumcision. The Gentiles were uncircumcised by that which is called the circumcision, which were the Jews, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, and we should love those two words, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off as Gentiles, are made nigh or near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. Now understand the context. He is our peace who has made both Jew and Gentile one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, which is the hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile. Even the law of commandments contained in ordinances for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity or the hostility thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. For through him We both, Jew and Gentile, have access by one spirit unto the Father. That is what the shepherd, the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, has come to do. And that is the flock that we who love him and serve him and know him belong to. Thank the Lord that he's the good shepherd Amen?